Psalm 23, Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this passage of Scripture, this psalm, this song, it could be our prayer. Lord, I pray that you would open your word and make it a fragrant offering, Lord, a a smell that everyone in here can smell, a song that everyone in here can hear and use to praise you and worship you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Psalm 23, the song of the great brother keeper. Psalm 23 holds a special place in American culture as the psalm that everyone expects to hear at a funeral. We seem to have come to understand the psalmist's passage through the valley of the shadow of death as going through death itself. Thus we tend to think of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever as going to heaven when we die. And then we get into our Hebrew exegesis class and Dr. Parsons bursts that bubble in short order. Thank you, Dr. Parsons, for uh, spoiling those things we remember learning at our grandmother's knee and from which we got great comfort even at her funeral. We learn that the valley of the shadow of death might better be thought of as a gloomy valley where the sun does not shine. Theologically, we can certainly trust God to take us through the last dark valley that we call death. But that is not the purpose of this psalm. We learn that we have to table our sentimental understanding of the passage as therapeutic poetry for times of grief and loss in favor of one which takes into account the original intent of the passage. In the case of the psalms, we have to consider both the meaning and the function of the psalm as a song used in worship in ancient Israel. Furthermore, we have to consider what it means in light of the New Testament. And I have come to believe, along with St. Augustine, that the Psalms are the songs of Jesus and his body, the church, offered to God. Peter Lightheart, an author, uh, puts it this way. He says, Augustine made it a basic interpretive principle that the Psalms are now the words of the Savior, now the words of his people crying for salvation, now mystically both together. Psalms is the songbook of the whole Christ. In it, Jesus speaks of us, by us, in us, while we speak in him. Christ, in his session at the Father's right hand, sings these songs on our behalf, interceding for us with these words. And that sounds a little strange, no doubt. After all, we cannot imagine Christ singing a song in which he confesses sins, which he did not commit, or expressing doubts and fears that seem entirely unchristlike. 
Nevertheless, these songs by uh, God's people are also the inspired word of God. If psalms by man to God are also the word of God to man, then it makes perfect sense for the God-man to sing them. Jesus is singing these songs to the Father on our behalf, and we participate in that by singing them in our church gatherings. The heart of Psalm 23 is the confident declaration, Thou art with me. The basic meaning of this psalm is that God is with his people in all times, and that he pursues us with his loyal love, drawing us into his presence and his house forever, despite the perils of this life. God takes care of us. And that is something that we can use this psalm to teach even the smallest child. It is very therapeutic to speak, nay, to sing these words to one another in the worship of God. On the other hand, it is my distinct pleasure to preach this text to you this morning. And it's my pleasure to break open this word to spread it around so that you can smell the aroma and give glory to God. And when I told Dr. Holmes that I wanted to do Psalm 23, he was surprised. He even said something like, Out of all the psalms you could pick, Brother Gooker, you pick that one? Don't you want to do something a little different? As if Psalm 23 were old hat. Now I get that. We all get that, right? We think we know this psalm so well, and we are used to hearing it in the context of other people's grief. And if you don't know, Dr. Holmes used to be a funeral director. I can imagine that he has heard it in that context quite a few times. And I admit that if someone had assigned me to preach this psalm when I wasn't ready for it, I would have been a little bit disappointed. But I can assure you that I am really excited about sharing this psalm with you today. I want you to consider this morning that at the heart of the Bible is a rather substantial book of song, but we rarely treat it as such. And yet, a book of song it is. That must mean that God really likes music and that he is himself musical. The whole Bible is musical, really, and if you read the Bible enough, you will begin to hear its melodies and its harmonies throughout. You will begin to hear themes upon themes in complex array. If you listen to the music of the Bible, you will find Psalm 23 all over the Bible. And you will find the whole Bible in Psalm 23. Many commentators on this passage agree that the psalm contains two images. The first is Yahweh as shepherd, and the second is Yahweh as the hospitable host of his house. However, they seem unsure about how these two themes are related. Perhaps it is the fact that a shepherd leads sheep to good grazing land, leading them through right paths despite danger to the place where they can feed. Grazing land can thus be seen as a table set in the midst of enemies when one considers the presence of wolves and other beasts of prey that, uh, that might prey upon the sheep. On the other hand, the transition does seem somewhat abrupt. And we might ask why the psalmist would set these two themes side by side in this psalm. Why does he move from the shepherd's field into the Lord's house? What's the logic? I've discovered that this is actually one theme, rather, uh, rather than two distinct images, and that it runs throughout the whole Bible. You see, the task of shepherding 
the whole process of caring for animals so that they can be food for the dinner table, is a deeply biblical symbol of worship and salvation history. There are two biblical concepts uh, that we need to understand in order to grasp this theme. The first concept we need to understand is the close relationship between people and animals. As the psalm goes, the Lord is my shepherd. Why does the psalmist use this imagery? Where does it come from? Well, we understand that sheeple, I mean people, um, are quite stubborn and stupid like sheep. The prophet Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Furthermore, in his parables, Christ likened all the people of this world unto sheep and goats that need to be separated at the end of the age. And we're quite familiar with this symbolism. We've read these parables and these passages all our lives. But it goes a lot deeper than the idea that people often behave like sheep or goats. You see, anytime something really big and important happens with humanity throughout biblical history, something really big and important happens to animals as well. God created land animals and people on the sixth day of creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, God slew animals to provide a covering for their nakedness and atonement for their sin. That's a pretty big deal. The first creatures to die were animals in our place. And since then, animals have suffered uh, because of our sin. It makes it seem like we're, really, we're not really good at that whole uh, taking dominion of the earth and ruling the earth as God told us to do. Now next we see, uh, we see that God decided to destroy the earth with a flood on account of the wickedness of man. He destroyed almost all the people on the earth and also most of the animals on the land. Only those people, livestock, beasts, and creeping things, and birds which were on the ark were saved. And when they all came out of the ark, God made a covenant with all of them and their offspring after them, that he would not destroy them with a flood again. He gave the people and the animals the sign of his covenant in the rainbow. With that covenant, there also came a big change in man's responsibility on the earth. Here, God gave him the responsibility to execute capital punishment upon humans for the crime of murder. And at the same time, he gave mankind the authority to kill and eat the meat of animals provided they do not eat the meat together with the blood. These are details that we often pass by without thinking much about them. Because we would rather read this as a simple history, and we often concern ourselves so much with whether or not it was scientifically possible for all these things to happen, and whether or not this really happened, that we forget to consider their theological implications. This is theology. It's eschatology to be more precise, uh, because it, it deals with the last things of the world of Noah and the new creation that came after that. Now, the next big thing uh, was the exodus of the children of Israel. When the children of Israel left Egypt, they left with all their livestock. God saved their livestock, their livestock from the plagues of Egypt and led them out together with Israel. Conversely, God did not spare the livestock of Egypt. There was that one plague where they all died. Uh, the firstborn of both man and beast also died in the, in the last plague. The Passover lambs in Israel died, but the rest of the livestock lived. They passed through the Red Sea and came to Mount Sinai, where God established the Mosaic Covenant. In that covenant, the children of Israel were given a strict holiness code, which limited the animals that they could eat. 
Israel became holy to the Lord, and thus they could only eat clean animals, and only certain clean animals were acceptable as offerings to God. These clean animals were the animals which were domestic to God. Israel was God's domesticated people, if you will. This all changed again when Christ came in the flesh, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. In the new covenant, all people, both of Jews and Gentiles, may approach God in the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, God shows Peter a vision of a giant sheet that comes down from heaven and on it every clean and unclean animal. God tells him to kill and eat. Peter protests, saying that he has never eaten any unclean animal. God is showing Peter uh, in this vision that he has invited all the nations to come to him because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moreover, there is once again an opening up of what God's people can eat so long as they do not eat the blood. Therefore, animals are our symbolic companions throughout salvation history. And this fact comes out in other places in the Bible as well. Have you ever wondered why uh, God commanded Israel to kill the, um, the animals of the Amalekites and the Canaanites when they were going through the, through the promised land and uh, conquering the land? Why kill the animals? What did they do? Well, they were the unholy animals of an unholy people. Or how about the weird behavior of the Ninevites in the book of Jonah? When the people of Nineveh repented and turned to God in the face of judgment, they put sackcloth and ashes on themselves and on their livestock. And together with their livestock, fasted. God saved the people and the animals of the city of Nineveh. Animals were with us in the fall. They were with us in the flood. They were with us coming up out of Egypt and in the wilderness and crossing the river Jordan. And this means that they are going with us into the new heaven and the new earth. For the creation has been subjected to futility and eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Having been subjected to corruption, animals die and they rot. When your dog or cat dies and begins to rot, you have to put it in the earth before it starts to stink. That is corruption. And we have to do that with our parents and our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, and even our little children sometimes. And that's our fault. So repent and believe the gospel so that the whole world can be renewed. The second concept we need to understand is that God has established a heaven and earth pattern that he keeps up throughout the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven is God's sanctuary, and the earth is the outer place from that sanctuary. He then planted a sanctuary garden called Eden. The Garden of Eden is like a temple sanctuary, and man is the priest in that temple, with instructions to keep it and guard it. He eats there from the tree of life and guards the tree of knowledge. The field is the place outside the garden. It's the place where the serpent And the other wild animals live. When man sinned, he was cast out of the temple garden to work the ground and the field. And God placed a cherub with a flaming sword at the east entrance to the garden to guard it. This looks forward to the tabernacle and then the temple, both of which had an eastern entrance uh, with uh, Levites camping on the eastern side of the tabernacle to guard it. 
Now, when Cain uh, commits the first murder in Genesis, he is driven even further east to the land of Nod, which means the land of wandering. Just as his parents were driven from the presence of God, Cain was driven even further from the presence of God because of his sin. The Lord God dwells in heaven and does not need a house made with human hands. But he chose to provide the children of Israel with an earthly sanctuary, a copy of heaven, so that they could come into his presence. The tabernacle was an earthly copy of the heavenly realm. We see this clearly in Hebrews chapter 8, where it says that the priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses went up high on the mountain, close to heaven, and brought down instructions for how to make heaven on earth. We might say that in the tabernacle, God was doing his will on earth as it is done in heaven. And again, the temple was a copy of heaven. And a more permanent one, though still not the final form of God's dwelling place on earth. The final copy of heaven is Jesus Christ and his body, the church, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of John tells us that in Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Christ, we behold the glory of God, just as the priests of Israel beheld the glory cloud of God in the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 2, Destroy this house, and I will raise it up again in three days. Jesus was not talking about the house or temple of Herod, but rather the house or temple of his own body. Jesus and his people are the ultimate earthly dwelling place of God. In the book of Revelation, we see the bride of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem city, coming down from heaven, completing the pattern of bringing God's heaven to earth. And the new earth or that the new earth would be united with the new heaven, and that God's will would be done in both forever. See, God wants us to understand that heaven is his dwelling place, and that the tabernacle, then the temple, and now the body of Christ is heaven on earth. But this pattern also extends uh, symbolically to our own tents and houses as well. It teaches us how God feels about his own house. Just as heaven is God's sanctuary, my house is my sanctuary. Now, we just bought a house on almost four acres, and now people are starting to tell us, welcome to home ownership. And that's because home ownership is a big responsibility. Um, I have to learn to manage my household well, and it requires a lot of different things to do that. Um, I have to keep it. I have to guard it. And unfortunately, we have had a most vile interloper come into our presence lately. Scorpions. Ugh. I hate scorpions. I do not have the slightest bit of regret in destroying a scorpion the moment I see it. Ants, moths, mice, lizards. I'll kill those too, but with varying degrees of haste. Scorpions, on the other hand, are my most hated enemy right now. They are utterly alien and unclean with their pinchers and stinging tails. They cause pain and suffering, and I should not have to wear shoes in my own sanctuary just to keep from stepping on one and feeling its sting. You see, my house is holy ground. 
If a scorpion comes into my house, I'm not going to ask it the EE diagnostic question. You know, why should I allow you into my heaven? If a scorpion comes up underneath my feet at the dinner table, I am going to react. I'm going to step on it and kill it and destroy it with swift retribution as penalty for its error. I don't want them in the house. I don't want them on the porch. I don't want them in the yard. Shortly after moving into our house, we got a dog. My affection for him is growing daily, but he is not welcome in the house or even on the porch. He is welcome and given everything he needs to flourish in our yard, which you might say is the outer court of my sanctuary. But he is not welcome in my holy of holies. And another illustration of this just happened this morning. He came, uh, when I came out, he was off of his um, tether and he, was, he met me right there at the porch. And he wanted to come up on the porch. I said, no. And then he wanted to come see me. He wanted to say hello. But I was wearing my nice clothes, my priestly garments uh, from my house. And I could not allow him to touch me lest he communicate to me his uncleanness. And now, as you can tell by looking at my lovely wife, Rachel, you can see that uh, we're about to have a baby. A little girl named Pearl Rose. Someday, Lord willing, that little girl is going to be playing in the yard with the dog. And she'll be as filthy, dirty as the dog. But I'm going to call her into the house. When she comes in, I'm going to bathe her. And she's going to sit down with her mother and I at the dinner table. She may want to bring her toys to the table. She may want to throw English peas against the wall like I did when I was a child. But in time, I will teach her table manners and the customs and rituals of dinner in our house. She may see someday that the neighbor children don't have to go in for supper. They don't have anyone to make them bathe. They may may get to eat Doritos and drink soda in front of the television. And if we invite those little children to our house, we will not try to reach out to them by offering them Doritos and soda in front of the television. In our house, we'll sit at the table. We'll be kind to them. We'll be understanding to them. But we'll sit at our table. We'll talk. We'll eat true food and drink true drink together. And she will rest. Our daughter will rest and grow in wisdom and stature. Hopefully in favor with God and man. Of course, these are ideals. We won't always make it to the table. We won't always be perfectly clean when we get there, but we're going to teach her all these things. And that is what it means for God to invite us, his children, into his house. Whether it was the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament or the church. Under the Old Covenant, God called his people into his presence, and with the help of the priests, they drew near to God. The priests washed themselves with water in the bronze basin. They spoke to God and ate with him. In the new covenant, we are washed in baptism as we come into Christ's body. And we eat at his table, the feast of the Lord's Supper. We learn the manners and customs of the heavenly Father's table. The people in the Old Testament could not simply come into God's presence without atonement for sin, however. In order to draw near, they had to bring offerings of particular animals the animals which were domestic to God. They had to, they had to bring these animals because animals are symbolic of them, of the people. So when the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He's tapping into deep biblical symbolism. He's saying, Lord, you are looking after me in the field where I live and work and struggle with thorns and thistles and wild beasts. You take care of me and feed me out here. But you will bring me from that place into your house. And you'll bring me into your glory. And I will eat with you and live with you forever. This is the story of the whole Bible. God bringing us from profanity into holiness. From sinfulness into righteousness. From the field into the house. From the earth up into heaven. This psalm is not really about going to heaven when we die either. This psalm is about going to heaven while we yet live. You see, in our corporate worship, we go into the very heart of heaven, the body of Christ. And he sends us out from there with his blessing to bring heaven to earth. Father, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And the good news is we get to come back next week and the next week and the next week, until we do finally make it to that new heaven and new earth. And we can hear this music throughout Holy Scripture. If we listen closely, we can hear the theme of Psalm 23 in the story of Cain and Abel. That's why we read that text today. Abel was a keeper of flocks, a shepherd, while Cain was a worker of the ground. They each brought their offerings to God, and God was pleased with Abel's offering, because it was of the firstlings of his flocks and their fat portions. Cain's offering was just some stuff from the ground, hardly the best that he could do. As a keeper of sheep, Abel knew how to take animals out into the field to help them find pasture. He knew how to bring them into the sphere of the house, that is, the folds and pens where animals are kept, Again, that's why we call them domesticated animals. They come near the house. They are near us. They live with us. They're house animals. While animals like serpents and wolves and lions belong in the field, sheep and goats and cows and oxen, they always return to the house. Furthermore, Abel proves that he knew how to bring animals into the house to be offered up as sacrifices to God. The final destination of domesticated animals is the table. And in the ancient world, food does not go to your table until it has ascended on the altar for the table of the gods. Most of the meat that anyone ate was offered to one god or another. That's why there's warnings in the Bible about eating food sacrificed to idols and whether or not those are real uh, gods or just demons and how we can deal with that in the midst of our brothers and sisters. But uh, we all know that their sacrifices were supposed to be offered to Yahweh, the one true God. Worshippers in ancient Israel brought animal sacrifices as food offerings to God. That word is all through the book of Leviticus, uh, which were representations of themselves. And that's what Abel did. Abel was offering himself in the form of this animal. Now that Christ is our Passover lamb, we get, our, we get to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. For this is our reasonable service of worship, as Paul says. Therefore, when Cain spoke to Abel and said, let's go out into the field... And then he rose up and murdered him like a beast of the field. He did the exact opposite of what a pastor is supposed to do. God asks him, where is your brother? And what was his reply? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you see the play on words there? Abel, the keeper of sheep, was right in his worship. But Cain, who did not keep his brother, spoke to him in such a way as to lead him from the house into the field, a sermon leading him out into the field, if you will, 
to offer him not to God, but to the cursed earth, the thing he loved most anyway. The earth drank his blood, and Abel's blood screamed out against his brother. Cain robbed God of a worshiper, and God drove him out from before his face to the east, to the land of wandering. From this story, we learn not only that it is wrong to murder, but that murder leads people away from God, and that leading people away from God is murder. And so I ask you, where is your brother? Where is your sister? Where is your spouse? Have you led brother and sister and spouse and little child to God or away from him? Are you a true shepherd or a false one? If you feel called to shepherd souls to pastor, This is your calling, to lead people toward the house of God that they may offer themselves wholly to God as living sacrifices. Another story where we can hear the music is the story of Jacob and Esau. The book of Genesis tells us that when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a complete or quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And as is so often the case, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, remembered the promise of God that the older would serve the younger, but the man Isaac favored the older son and the ways of the older son. Esau was a hunter, a wild man of the field. We have to be careful not to call his ways true masculinity, because true masculinity is found in a well-rounded man who, above all, loves the house of God and, secondly, manages his own household well. Jacob was a herdsman also, and it was nothing for his mother to tell him to go and take two goats from the flock to take to Isaac. When Jacob tricked his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn, he brought a food offering into the house for his father. He was clothed in the skins of his elder brother, and the father smelled Esau and felt the hands of Esau. When Esau was in the field, Jacob was in the house receiving the blessing. This, by the way, is a foreshadowing of the Day of Atonement. When two goats would be brought, one would be the scapegoat and would be sent out into the field. The other would be the goat of covering to cover the sins of the people. And when we go to God in Christ Jesus, God does not see second-born sons. He sees first-born sons. He sees Christ, the firstborn. The firstborn son was killed outside the camp, and we were brought into the house to receive the blessing. Jacob left home to go work for Uncle Laban. On the way there, he came to a place where he dreamed that he saw a ladder to heaven, and on it were ascending and descending angels. There God reaffirmed the covenant of Abraham with Jacob and said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. He named the place Bethel, the house of God. And he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob went to work for Laban for 14 years, and God prospered him as a herdsman. And when he left Laban, he came, the Lord shepherding him, and Jacob shepherding his family and his flocks back to Bethel, back to the house of God, where he would offer sacrifices to God. Only on the way to the house of God, he met his brother. And the two reconciled, just as the Lord Jesus would later teach all worshipers to do. 
Are you at peace with your brothers when you go to the house of God? Are you at peace with your spouse and children? You see, we can learn the theology of Jesus from the Old Testament because Jesus knew the scriptures. Jesus got his teachings by listening to the music of the Bible. Christ knew how to preach Christ from the Old Testament. Now, of course, we would find the music of Psalm 23 in uh, the life of David since he wrote the psalm. Yahweh literally took him from the pasture. When Samuel came to anoint him as king, he was with the sheep in the field. And the Lord made him king over all Israel. David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but Yahweh said to David, I took you from the pasture, from the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That kingdom is Christ. You see, in Psalm, Psalm 23 is the soundtrack to David's life. God brought him from the pasture following after the sheep and brought him into a great house. God made a temple for all true worshipers in the church with Jesus Christ, the son of David, as the cornerstone. David wrote Psalm 23, but, Psalm 20, but the psalm wasn't even finished until Christ came. I ask you, are you hearing the music? Human beings didn't author this book. This is God's word. Ultimately, we see the music of Psalm 23 in the life of Jesus even from the time of his birth. In the nativity story, we read of Magi coming to worship Christ from the east, entering the holy land from the world outside, on the east side. And we read of shepherds coming from the fields to see Jesus, the bread that comes down from heaven, to Bethlehem, where he was born, the house of bread. In Mark chapter 6, after we read of Herod preparing a table for the nobles, in which he served up the head of John the Baptist on a platter, we read of Jesus with his disciples in the wilderness. And great crowds of people followed them, and it says that Jesus had compassion on them, for they were sheep without a shepherd. And when the hour grew late and they were hungry, Jesus told them to sit down on the green grass, green pastures. And he prepared a table for them in the midst of their enemies. Herod had just, in the previous passage, killed John the Baptist, making a feast of the sheep. Herod did not touch them, though. But they all ate and were satisfied. And there were twelve baskets of loaves and fishes left over, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus was tending his sheep. Jesus, the shepherd and king of Israel. Jesus is everything to us. He is the good shepherd of Israel. He is the dynasty of David. He is the cornerstone of the temple. He is the ladder to heaven. He is the house of God. He is the holy of holies. He is the Israel of God. He is the offspring of Jacob. He is the elder brother who was forsaken outside the camp. He is the scapegoat. He is the offered goat. He is the garment which hides our nakedness and shame from the Father. He is the good food offered up to the Father. 
He is the pleasing aroma for the Father. He is the Father's blessing to us, even though we are not the firstborn. He is the true worshiper. His cross is the table. He is the bread. He is the wine. He is the feast. He is the priest. He is the murdered brother. But his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus, like a shepherd, leads us from the field of this present world to the new heaven. He is the great brother keeper, and this is his song. I preach this gospel to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.